Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. With us today is Dr. Robert Cialdini. Uh, He wrote the book originally called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. It became the textbook, uh, not written at all like a textbook, written like a very interesting story and book, but it became the textbook that every piece of marketing that you probably receive today is based on the work and the research and the writing that Dr. Cialdini did and put in influence. He has come out recently with a new book. It's the first, um, in effect, prequel, uh, to official prequel to, uh, to influence called Presuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade. We're very fortunate to have him with us here today. He will give us a short overview of the two books, and then we'll get into a conversation about marketing based on it. Bob, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Well, thank you, Peter. I'm very well. I'm very glad to be with you and and your uh, followers. Thanks, and it's. I, I should say also, it's nice to we we share a literary agent, so it's nice to to you know that's who first told me that you were uh, coming out with a new book, and it's nice to put the face to the name. And of course, your first book has been on my bookshelf for you know at least a decade, if not two. So, um, first of all, did you have any idea when you wrote Influence, when you wrote your first book, did you have any idea that it would, in effect, define an industry and be as big as it's become? I, you know, you've sold millions of copies. Did, did, you, did you have a sense when you wrote it that it had this kind of power? None. None. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a book that uh, I thought I needed to write. Uh, but I never expected that it would have the reach that it has, and uh, uh, I, I, could, I couldn't have sensibly imagined uh, that it had, would sell as many copies as, as it has. Uh, ac- uh, books by academics at that point in time just didn't have uh, that kind of impact. I mean, in some ways, yours may have been the first book that – created this i don't know i'm just i'm i'm sort of thinking about when it came out and it that that in effect shifted a sense of academics that they could write popular books and i think that might be the case for a couple of reasons one is that um the book was seen uh, as not something that was pandering, not something that was popularizing uh, behavioral science, but was offering an, uh, a valid picture of it to the larger community. Uh, the second reason is that uh, I think we've finally come as a, as a community of behavioral science to recognize what we owe to the larger community – in any meaningful sense, they've paid for this research. They're entitled to know what we found out with their money, right? And so uh, some some venues, some channels had to be uh, uh, visited 
that will allow us to speak uh, beyond the academic journals in which we typically buried our work. I love that. I love that perspective. And it's obviously caught on because there's a lot of popular books, especially in the social behavioral sciences, that have come out and continue to come out. And there's, you know, in behavioral economics in and of itself is, you know, a whole uh, kind of reality-based uh, economic academic perspective that is very popular and, and has helped a lot of people in terms of financial decisions that they're trying to make. All right. So, Bob, why don't you start with, you know, you have these sort of six psychological principles for greater influence, uh, reciprocation, liking, social proof, authenticity, scarcity, and consistency. Could you give us one or two sentences on each so that everybody who's listening has a basic understanding of, of how you think of influence and, and, and what influence looks and sounds like, and then we can talk about uh, persuasion. Certainly. The first is reciprocation, the idea that people want to give back to those who have first given to them. Um, There was a study done in a candy shop. If uh, visitors came in and received a small piece of chocolate from the manager as they uh, they entered, they were 47% more likely to buy the the candy at at the shop because they felt obligated to give back to someone who had given to them. Liking is another principle, the one that most of us understand, don't need to to hear from me uh, about, that we prefer to say yes to those we like. But there's interesting research that shows that a simple thing like pointing out a commonality or even demonstrating a similarity in verbal style increases the outcomes of the communicator uh, in a negotiation. Uh, Even in a hostage negotiation, there's research that shows if the hostage negotiator matches the verbal style of of, of the hostage taker, you get a better outcome. So uh, a a third principle is the one that I call social proof, the idea that people want to uh, follow the lead of multiple comparable others. It's a good way to reduce their uncertainty about what they should do. There's a lovely study in Beijing that shows that if a a restaurant owner puts on the menu, uh, these are our most popular items, each one immediately becomes 13 to 20 percent more popular. Entirely ethical, entirely costless, and entirely effective. Uh, another is the principle of authority, the one that says we we are usually well advised to follow the lead of uh, uh, legitimate experts, authorities in the matter. Um, and uh, there's there's no surprise there. Here's a nice little study. If you're if you're proposing a budget, right? Uh, let's say it's for $25,000. You figured it all out and it comes out to $25,078. So what we typically do is to round that off and say this will cost $25,000. You've made a mistake. If you say it's $25,078, you're seen as more authoritative. You've done your homework. And people are more willing to say yes to the larger number than the smaller one. 
Okay. Uh, 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 another principle is the principle of scarcity. Um, people want to want more of those things they can have less of. So there was a, a, a nifty little study done in a, a supermarket in which uh, uh, the researchers randomly put in front of certain uh, uh, brands on the on the store shelf only three items per customer doubled sales <laughs> people want what they can't get and if we can honestly inform them of genuine limitations or scarcities or dwindling availabilities uh, we should do so um, they want to know that and we would be benefited both of us would be benefited by that information and and then finally there's commitment and consistency the idea that people want to be consistent with what they have committed themselves to especially in writing form i have a colleague in the uk who was able to significantly reduce no shows at doctor's appointments there by doing something a little different. You know, at the end of every appointment, we get a card from the receptionist with the date and time of our next appointment written on it. Yeah. He, my colleague, in, instead instituted the following change. You give the patient a blank card and a pen. They write the date and time of the next appointment, and they're 18% less likely to fail to show up for it. Because now, why does made, that work? Because they've they've, they've, they've made, made an commitment. active public commitment to it. Yeah, interesting. So you know, all of these are so familiar to us now because it's you know it's the sales funnel on a marketing site. It's the testimonials, you know, social proof. Look at these other people and what they're saying about it. It's the sense that you have you know three hours left uh, to to take this offer. I mean, it's all over the place, and you know, you you start. Um, persuasion talking about ethics and the ethics of it and it's i've always wondered about this because on the one hand it 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 seems like these are very valid uh, uh methods of influencing people on the other hand there's a sense of manipulation right that we know something that the other person doesn't know and we're getting them to make a decision they may not otherwise make because they're almost falling for these tactics and 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 yet I know for you that ethics is very, very important. So I'd love for you to just, you know, as we engage in this conversation, speak about that for a minute. Well, I think that's a central point, Peter. It's it's so important to think about that. And people often ask me, now that you are um, familiar with these principles, you've written about them, you've talked about them, are you less susceptible to them? Do, do, you, do you fend them off better? And the answer is I fend them off better when they're employed dishonestly, but I don't want to fend them off when they're employed honestly. So if there's genuine social proof, like that a manager in, in the Beijing restaurant who points to his most popular items, they've been beta tested for me. Of course I want that information. If I know that genuine authorities have spoken in favor of a particular pain reliever. I want to know that information. The last time I bought a, um, a television set, I was in a, an appliance store and I was passing one particular model and it caught my eye because I had read some very positive reviews of it and it was on sale. And the salesman came up and he said, I see you're interested in this. Um, I can see why it's a great set at this price, but I have to tell you, it's our last one. <laughs> 
<laughs> and ten minutes later, I'm walking out of the right. short with with this. All right now, here's the thing: if he was blowing smoke, I'm exploited. Right. If he was if he was giving me information, if he was informing me into assent, I feel aided. Well, and this is the this is what's so interesting, right? Because he could be you don't know. You walk out of that store and you don't know if he's said that to the last ten customers or if he's just said it to you. And when I think about the Chinese restaurant, we don't know whether those are the most popular items or the cheapest to make. And right. that therefore they want to sell those. And I guess there's this level of trust that you just you know, you you you're you're either gonna be the kind of person who's suspicious of all of it or trust, or in that moment you have to say, Okay, I do want this television, and there is one, so I feel the energy already. Is I better nab this before someone else. Let me just pause for a minute and say, is this the TV that I want? Like, like put that you're, aside for a moment. You're exactly right. You have to step back because uh, and and decide on the merits of the thing, not the scarcity of it. it. Do you want this thing? But there's also a way to check, and often it's not in the moment. It's 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 later if i was steered to a set of items on the menu that were the cheapest to produce not the best i would have to say to myself this is the best uh, i wouldn't be less i'd be less likely to come back and with that television set i went back the next day to see if there was that space on the <laughs> shelf or they had filled it with another one from the back room. There was a space on the shelf. They had done this for me. And so I'm now able to recommend this place right. in a way that I wouldn't have. In fact, I would have done the opposite if I had found them to be lying. I would have said, don't go here. They're just, you know, they're cheaters. So that's the that's where trust plays in, which is that yeah. fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. That that in effect we we could do a little bit of work to say, is this is this a trustworthy source? And if so, then I can go back to them. And so as influencers ourselves, we have to recognize that we're never just making one sale, that we're never just making one pitch, that we're never just trying to influence one person in one way. We have a reputation. And reputations you know, if if the web has made influence and selling into the you know leveraged the science that it is, uh, it's done the same thing for reputations. And so, if you end up getting this reputation of being someone who influences unethically, then um, then I'm sure it would be easy to do the research to show that your sales go down. Precisely, this is one of the things that that we've uh, been able to benefit from from uh, technology, the the internet. Uh, there's the ability to check on the reputation of the various kinds of uh, of, of sellers, people who are offering their services of one sort or another. We can check on that in ways that wasn't in ways that weren't available to us uh, before. And the the answer also, I think, as I'm listening to you is, and I have a quote actually of, uh, that you wrote in the book that I think was an excellent quote, which is, it's you know, ethics and marketing are two separate questions in some ways. One's a tool, and one is how you use the tool, and it's no longer a question of whether or not to use the tool. We do. There's this quote you have um, where you say. No longer should we think of language 
as primarily a mechanism of conveyance, as a means for delivering a communicator's conception of reality. Instead, we should think of language as primarily a mechanism of influence, as a means of inducing recipients to share that conception, or at least to act in accord with it. That in effect, every time we speak, it's to move something somewhere in some direction in some way. And when we see that, we could be particularly thoughtful about how we speak in what way and what tools we're using. Correct. I couldn't say it better in fact you couldn't say it better because you did say it (laughs) that's the advantage of quoting you (laughs) but your characterization of it was right on thank you so um talk to us a little bit about persuasion we you, you call it the prequel to influence yes in the following sense whereas influence had to do with what you put into a message what you load into it um, to move people in your direction. Persuasion is about what you put into the moment before you deliver your message to make your audience attuned to what they are about to experience. Right? It's almost like the warm-up act for a comedian, that by the time the comedian gets onto the stage, everyone's already laughing. Yes, but the comedian wants to be sure that it's a particular kind of warm-up act that sets up the audience to be attuned to or sensitized to the kind of information that will be the strength of the uh, the main event. Makes a tremendous amount of sense. So, you know, what can you share with us? I mean, I've got I've got quotes and thoughts here, but I, I like you know when you think about the you know, the essential advice of persuasion, right? And it, it kind of leverages, it, it sets it up to, to sort of leverage these other six. What, what's sort of the big idea in it? The big idea is that where we draw people's attention, right, in the moment before we deliver a message, changes their view of what's important about the next moment, about the information that will be in the next moment. Because when we focus someone's attention on an idea or an image, that concept becomes overvalued in the recipient's mind for a brief time. So, so as an example, I, I run a leadership, uh, what we call the leadership intensive, and it's intensive. It's a four-day uh, experiential workshop. If I were to say to you, hey, um, this, this workshop is scary to some people because you know it goes really deep, and that's going to predispose you already to maybe being a little afraid and being uncertain about it. If I were to say to you, um, are, are you in it? And this is examples that you use in the book. Are you, do you like adventure? Like when, are you an adventurous kind of guy? Because this leadership intensive very much takes you on an adventure of discovering your own leadership. So is that, am I thinking about this correctly? You are. And what that does is to then cause an individual to prioritize a search in the next mater- set of material he or she receives for information that is consistent with this conception of adventurousness. 
Here's the problem with a lot of modern day life. We are bombarded by all kinds of information in, and stimuli have multiple facets. Right? Your job as a persuader for your program is to identify the strength of it, the essence of it, the thing that makes it most wise for individuals to say, I want to be part of this. And then you provide, and maybe it's the the concept of the 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 search or the adventure, or the exploration that it's associated with. That you provide an image of an explorer, or you provide an image of a downhill racer, some something that's associated with adventurousness and exploration, that will cause your audience to search your material. For that one thing, and if that one thing is your strength, both sides win. There's a lovely study that was done by an online furniture store. For half of the visitors to to their site, they sent them to a landing page that had fluffy clouds in the background. The other half were sent to a landing page that had coins, in fact, pennies, small money in the background. Those who encountered the fluffy clouds then rated softness and comfort as more important as factors in deciding on what kind of sofa to purchase. And they searched the site for information related to comfort and softness, and they ultimately decided to prefer for purchase comfortable furniture. Those who went to the site with coins rated price as a factor that was most important for them in deciding. They searched for cost-related information and ultimately decided to prefer inexpensive furniture for purchase. So, and here's the thing about it. That's a little, to be honest, scary. When they were asked afterwards if the persuasive information that they got, coins or clouds, made any difference, they laughed and said, of course not. Of course not. I'm, an indiv- I, I'm, I'm my own person. I know what my preferences are, and I follow my internal preferences. They never recognized that those preferences were shaped in the moment by the first set of concepts they encountered. You know, what's interesting, too, is that I, and I've seen this research where if you ask me, was I influenced by those things, I would say absolutely not. If you asked me, was that guy over there influenced by those things? I could look at it and say, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. the guy, you know, for yeah. sure. So we see how other people can be tricked, but we don't see it in ourselves in that way. Right. That's exactly right. And so if I were going to put on my consumer protection hat here, it would be to say to consumers, look, don't just examine what a communicator tells you inside his or her message for evidence of tricks or deception or misdirection. You have to look at the moment before the message because there's leverage there that's going to constrain the way you see the message 
in important ways. And if you're not looking at what that person did or arranged or said before, you've missed an important component of the influence process. Are you writing to marketers or are you writing to consumers? Or you know, are you writing to both? I'm writing to, mostly to people who uh, want to harness this to produce good outcomes, good persuasive outcomes. But I am, I am trying to um, uh, infuse uh, the information with uh, admonitions to do this only in ethical ways um, for long-term consequences and also for uh, some consequences inside the organization that I talk about in one whole chapter that in organizations that use these strategies unethically, some people will feel uncomfortable with that deception and will leave. What will remain is a precipitate of people who are comfortable with cheating and they will cheat you. They've been selected for it. Hmm. And we, we present research to show that those individuals who are comfortable with cheating outside of the organizational envelope are much more likely to cheat inside. They're the ones who are going to steal equipment. They're the ones who are going to run under the table deals with vendors and suppliers and customers. You've pulled the viper under your coat. So that's, you know, so th this, this stuff could be used ethically or unethically, but there's a good bottom line reason to be scrupulously honest inside the organization so that the culture allows the people with the best ethics to be operating inside the, um, the organizational envelope. You know, and as I'm listening to you, my, I have an insight around this, which is that for any of us who are marketing, and almost all of us are, in one form or other, we're, we're selling something, that... Um, that it's worth that moment in the morning, the moment before the conversation, the, the, the self-association to ethics, to basically say, to associate ourselves and say, what do I care most deeply about? Like when I'm talking to someone yes. about the leadership intensive, what do I care most deeply yeah. about? What am I, let me get in touch with what's, or, or a consulting project or whatever it is. What do I care most deeply about? And then to use whatever influencing methods we can to further that ethical purpose, but mm. to you know the the to use your own tool to influence yourself yeah. to associate yourself with the the real ethics that that you have inside you, and then you end up influencing yourself in such a way that you act from that place, and there's a there's a safety in that in terms of how you show up in the world. Right, I I, I agree. That's a bullseye observation. Dr. Robert Cialdini is who is with us today. The book is Presuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade. Uh, my suggestion is buy both his books, The Psychology of Persuasion, in the book Influence and Presuasion. They're both excellent books. Bob, you're a, a terrific guest, and it's, it's so um, fun for me to, uh, you know, to have this conversation with you and to, to have you put color 
to to the ideas and and also to really have this conversation around ethics, which I feel is so important, and I know you feel is so important. And and to you know, for, for you've given us tools to be a magician. So now we have to use the magician for the light side as opposed to the dark side. Right, right. So thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I have to say, I enjoyed it thoroughly. If you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Bregman Leadership Intensive, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you to Claire Marshall for producing this episode and to Brian Wood, who created our music. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next great conversation.